0: To matters of the mind are you looking for answers ideas or just want someone to listen to you so you can vent join dr. Peter Sacco as he discusses what matters most issues that surround the mind he gets to the heart of the matter when it comes to issues involving anger depression addictions fear anxiety relationships sex abuse bullying and everything concerning you and now here's your host dr. Peter Sacco
1: Time so stay, stay with me, I admit, make you
0: glad you
1: came universe am glad,
2: glad you Well, hello there and welcome to Matters of the Mind where everything on your mind matters to uh, myself and my co-host and producer Todd Miller. How are you eight
0: Doing well, doing well, and yourself,
2: I am doing very very good. Um in fact, I've got two guests we're going to have on our show today. Um, and it's really a, a, a great thing to have these two women that are going to be coming on in our show as they're uh both psycho uh therapists, psychologists who deal with uh something that is extremely important in today's society. And in fact, our second guest had approached uh me in an email a little while ago, Dr. Alice Forrester, and the key issue and the big thing that we're going to be talking about is abuse in terms of different aspects of abuse. Because normally, when we hear all about abuse, it's usually, you know, we'll hear, you know, men, husbands, spousal abuse on wives, and oftentimes men don't get a lot of, um, how should we put, recognition and. Coming to the foresight, the fact that they could be the victims themselves. And both of our awesome guests are going to be talking about abuse as well as you know abuse that's affecting kids.
0: I think there's a perception that because men are big and brawny that they cannot be the victims of abuse. And I speak from personal experience where I can say confidently that yes... Abuse can be physical, although it doesn't mean completely dominating someone. It can be the threat of physical violence. It can also be emotional and, um, you know, mental abuse where there's uh, comments made, uh, uh, questioning someone's abilities, questioning someone's character that are. Um, and as we've talked about, you and I, can be far more devastating than just a, a bruise. And I'm not, I'm not downplaying a bruise because, you know, getting hit is, is wrong and, and harmful, but sometimes those um, insidious ones that, that come out of the mouth are far more damaging.
2: Absolutely. And looking at it uh, today, um, abuse uh, in terms of anybody uh, being the victim, and especially the male, uh, it's getting a little more publicity and recognition of the fact that it does happen to men, and I think the key point here is that all abuse is wrong, and I, I think you know hopefully both of the professionals that will be coming on our show will discuss it. And in terms of if you're a person as well in a professional role, uh, school teacher, social worker, psychologist, you know even police officer, um, law, or any career that involved, you know, looking after kids or involving relationship aspects. And if you suspect or you know any incidences of abuse, especially towards kids, it's something that needs to be reported and definitely needs to be, uh, how should we say, intervened in before it gets worse.
0: So l- let me talk a-, a little bit about the past. And in the past, you know, our generation, future generation, or past generations, when you talk to your father or a male figure... It was very much, sir, you called him father, there was a respect, you wouldn't talk back. That's shifted a bit, I would say. In some respects, it's gone too far where the kids are in control. There needs to be a nice balance in a family when you're raising kids where there's respect both ways. It doesn't need to be yes or no, sir, but it needs to be when my dad says something or my mom says something, I do it. I don't question it. Uh, in that I don't mean like not allowing them to question but just there are times when it's we need to leave get in the car there's no why do you know what I mean
2: absolutely and I you know I I think it's all about communication and effective communication and that it's being done for the right reasons that when you're asking somebody or giving a person a direction and I think that's the key where it doesn't look like you're demeaning or putting somebody down Or exploiting or abusing an individual, because the flip side of it is is that some you know the person might perceive this as hey, I feel like I'm being coerced here, I'm being forced into something, or you know I'm being exploited here, or even abused here. And I you know a lot of times when the person feels that way, they're more likely to not be as cooperative, and then the person asking or. You know, seeking the expectation of the other, other individual, maybe become frustrated by the, the turn of events or whatever, and then this could escalate into abuse, and then it becomes cyclical, and that's the key thing. where The longer it goes on, um, it becomes a pattern, and then this abuse does start.
0: So let me ask you, why why does that um, parental relationship, and it doesn't always need to be within the confines of a family, but why does one side of a relationship certain people need to be in control and they need to know that they are in control and they need to control someone there's an urge to do it, they can't allow that person to function independently, they need to be providing direction all the time on their life and correction and sometimes taking it to the next level where there's physical, emotional and you know verbal abuse
2: That's a great question, Todd. And it boils down to control issues that usually are systemic and stem from the fact that they grew up in an environment where they witnessed that it had happened to them. And this was the norm or the expectation. They watched one or both parents engage in this type of behavior in their own life. And at some point, you know, they might have felt rejected, they felt a shaming component to themselves, even abandoned. Um, Where they would go on to develop issues of jealousy, which would lead, you know, based and byproduct on an inferiority complex, a a weakened sense of the self, or their self esteem issues and needs. And then, with that said, they then learn that hey, I need to in some way be the alpha dog here, where I've got to be the top. And if I don't, I'm going to be undermined, and it's not going to work out well for me, and I'm going to lose because I've always lost in the past and I couldn't stand to have this happen to me again so therefore the controlling is their way of feeling that they have sense um, of the world around them and controlling their lives so to speak it's kind of funny Todd You, you bring up a great point because people that need to feel the control for other people they actually feel that when they're doing this they're controlling their lives but really their life is out of control
0: so they're trying to control what they can't control by controlling something they think they can control, if I got that right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so then let me ask you, I heard two, two distinct things there, and I want to make sure that, that they're clear. One is a learned pattern of behavior. So they're seeing it done, and they think that's the way to do it. The other, which I think I got out of that, or I, I sort of know from another part of my life is, they have been subject to that control when they're little, so it's like a vacuum. As soon as the control is gone, they assume control.
2: That about sums it up. In fact, if you know you want to take it even one step further, they're, they're then going to be drawn to an individual or select individuals that they know that they can control because it has to be a two way street in that point. So, the individual who I'm not going to say is victimized because they may not be victimized in an abusive sense, but rather they're more of a passive personality and they need to be told what to do and how to do it because they grew up in a similar environment. What they then start to do is re- reaffirm and how should we say enable this behavior to continue so the aggressor doesn't see what they're doing as abusive or wrong because this is the norm for them and the individual who is the aggressor the passive individual doesn't see this as being wrong because this is what is normal to them so unfortunately in some situations it will lead to abuse it will evolve to that and once again both parties will say it's this, this is still normal because this is what I grew up in in that type of situation. But I like I like to say deep down though, Todd, the abuser, if they have a sense of guilt, shame, or remorse, that they're not a sociopath or any social personality disorder, they know that they're doing wrong and they feel the sense of guilt. And the victim, on the other hand, they know that this is being done wrong and they live with this hopeful self that believes that the person is going to change.
0: And as you said, it's very much um, from their mind kind of innocuous where they're just asserting themselves. It's a, it's creating a sense of self where there wasn't one before because maybe they were abused or, or as I suggested that they weren't in control. So now that they are in control, they feel that they're just um, having a greater sense of self rather than doing damage to other people.
2: Yeah, that, about, <laughs> that's, that is a perfect way of putting it. That is what would in a roundabout way sum it up. And in fact, when we return, um, Lynn McDonnell is going to join us. She's a registered psychotherapist, um, awesome person who's developed understanding and responding to male victimization, um, different seminars that she puts on to show that it does happen from the male perspective, that they can be the victim as well.
0: All right. Well, stay tuned. We've got more Matters of the Mind right around the corner on Listen Up Talk Radio. Stay with us.
1: you'll hear on out of the blue will be jazz for the most part no specific styles or genres every piece of music is hand picked to deliver quality performances out of the blue can be heard on rtds.ca live mondays 1 to 3 p.m. and encore performances tuesday to friday anytime on demand it's the true spirit of jazz a touch of everything and then some thanks for listening i'm larry green
2: Well hello there, this is Dr. Peter Andersacco, host of Matters of the Mind. Just want to thank you all for making 2015 a tremendous season again for our show, and we look forward to seeing you next year. Hey, do you like to read? I've got some free books from you, that's right. Yours truly have some really cool books you might find interesting, especially if you like The Walking Dead or are a Vampire Diaries fan. Check out my website, petersacco.com. That's petersacco.com. And right now you can download Why in the Hell Serial Killers? Crazy for vampires and zombies. And also, you can check out my book and download, Technological Raid. Yep, folks, they are free. And also, for those interested in making a difference in anti bullying campaigns, you can download three free ebooks right now, also at petersacco.com. And you can go to bullyingisforthebirds.com. Thank you once again so much, folks. You are the best listeners in the world. We exist because of you. Have a great holiday season this year.
0: Welcome back to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Heard worldwide on Listen Up Talk Radio at talk-radio.ca.
2: Welcome back to Matters of the Mind where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week especially today on this very dismal rainy <laughs> slash potential stormy day and pretty good topic that we're talking about. It's been brought to my attention many, many, many times not only as a practitioner but as for as long as we've been doing this uh, radio show. Uh, people have wanted to know about abuse at all levels. And as we just talked about before, uh, going to the break, we've got a great guest. Lynn McDonnell, who is right in Toronto, she is a registered psychotherapist and has been in clinical practice since 1983. She also works in substance abuse and has designed and implemented out um, patient substance abuse treatment programs. Lynn also does something that is really cool. Um, she has created conferences for understanding and responding to male victimization uh, when it comes to abuse. Welcome to the show, Lynn.
3: Well, thank you. Welcome, um, thank you for inviting me.
2: So you've done a fair bit um, in terms of designing and managing um, support systems for survivors of sexual abuse, um, You know, whether they be in one-on-one sessions, group sessions, and clinical support. So let me ask you this then. Because it, I've been in practice for oh gosh, well over twenty years in this field, and I know a fair bit about it. And it's always been that when it comes to sexual abuse against males, or even abuse perpetrated uh, against males by women, or even other men in um, gay relationships, it is one of these statistical anomalies that is really swept under the rug. So, and I've been really dissociate, you know, dissociated from this as a practitioner for many years now how prevalent is it now is has abuse rates sexual abuse rates towards men has it increased or is it just more coming out of the woodwork in terms of the statistics
3: i really think more is coming out of the woodwork in terms of statistics because many of the men that i work with are coming forward 30 40 years after the event so you know i just i re- i really really believe more are coming out of the woodwork and you know we have events that happen can can stay different really, really uh, well-known events, and that helps men come forward. So the statistics are probably more accurate because more people are coming forward, not because it's getting
0: worse. So from, I guess what I'm hearing then is, is it men are becoming more comfortable in acknowledging that something's happened in their lives, um, whether it be just to start the healing process or... As we've seen in many cases, some men standing up, like I believe Sheldon Kennedy, saying this has happened to me and I want to share it with as many people as I can so that others will come forward either to um, get their accuser taken care of or begin the healing because there are so many people suffering in silence.
3: Exactly. Exactly. People that are courageous enough to come forward, like Sheldon, like so many others, they're the ones that have that are uh, making it possible for other men to come forward. You know, when you have a big, strong hockey player saying, this happened to me, um, you don't feel so... So uh, ashamed or embarrassed to say, yeah, this happened
0: to me too. And, and being in Canada, there's nothing more manly in some respects, if we're looking at stereotypes, as a big brawny hockey player, exactly. uh, which is it's a Canadian icon standing up saying, yeah, this happened to me and I was out of my control, but I'm not to blame.
3: Yes, that's, that's exactly what makes it possible for men to come forward. And the other men, too, I have a lot of men in my practice who are courageous enough to be telling people that they work with. And inevitably, whenever they tell other people, they start hearing the stories back. So I have someone who's, um, you know, uh, a Bay Street accountant, for instance. When he tells his colleagues, other people are telling them, telling him, yes, that happened to me, too. So men are starting to tell each other.
2: So let me ask you this, Denlin: Is there then still a a misbelief or misnomer when it's abuse perpetrated against a male by a woman? I remember many years ago sitting at a conference uh, when I was involved working with police, and it was a sexual assault, uh, sexual awareness conference. And I remember I was having lunch with the crown attorney from Toronto. And you know we were talking shop, and then I said, "Oh, you must be pretty busy, um, you know, with, with what's going on." She goes, "Oh, yeah, I've got a, a case, you know, beyond my property line." And I go, "Oh, that many male perpetrators of violence?" She goes, "Oh, no, Pete, no, these are all female um, <laughs> aggressors of it." So does that you know this misnomer, this misbelief system still work out that men I can't be sexually abused or abused by a woman?
3: Yeah. Yeah, that that is, that is so sad, and it's so true. And you know, I have eight men in my in my group. Every every group I run there's eight men. Two of them will be sexually abused by a woman. One quarter of the people in my group will be will have been sexually abused by a woman. Can you, isn't that astounding?
0: Absolutely astounding. Um, no. but,
3: but you know what? You know what's interesting,
2: Lynn. Okay, and teaching criminal psychology courses, I teach a course in sexual violence. I'll have students, so they'll look at me, and they'll look at me like I've got ten eyes. And they'll go, but how is that possible that a woman, especially an adult woman, can abuse an adult male sexually?
3: Well, it happens all the time. Do you want, you want me to talk about how it's possibly possible physiologically?
2: No, 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 I, I was looking at it in terms of, uh, ju- y- y- euphemistically, because they'll say, can a guy just say, no, this ain't happening or whatever, and just throw her literally off of him.
3: Yeah, because... used to, yeah, it, it, that makes some sense, you know, I hear what you're saying, however, they used to say, uh, you know, I'm quite a bit older, and they used to say in my day, a woman can run faster with her, her uh or skirt up than a man can with his pants down. How come he can't (laughs) run away? That's the truth. I I used to to hear that.
0: I I want to ask you a question about bravery, and let's frame it this way. Is there a risk for someone... You mentioned the high-profile Bay Street person. Is there a risk for someone, whether it's perceived or whether it's real to share that information in a workplace? Because, you know, I I know if you, if you say you have a drinking problem, some employers will be receptive and and get you any treatment and help you require, and others will kind of shun you or, you know, maybe say, Hey, maybe it's time to find a new job. Is there any risk in, in coming forward with some of these allegations and, and recognizing and communicating to your employer that you're on a healing path?
3: I suppose there could be. Um, you, you, one would have to know um, their employer fairly well, but usually what happens is, you know, lots of people cope, cope with sexual abuse in a variety of ways. And one of the ways they may cope with sexual abuse is drinking, as you mentioned, or drugging. But another way, which is far more prevalent than what people understand, is workaholism. So they've already got a track record of being a great employee.
0: Hmm.
3: So, you know, then the risk is is certainly minimized.
0: So they compensate or they um, kind of shelter themselves within the confines of work and they become a super producer where they're always, you know, oh, Ted's in at 7 in the morning and out at 9 at night. He's a really good exactly. employee.
3: Exactly. So, so th- the, 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 the downside of that is when they start the healing journey, they actually stop being to a superstar they start having a bit more balanced life
0: well that's the thing because you know if i was ted's boss all of a sudden ted who used to be in at seven and leave at nine is now in at noon because he's got some therapy in the morning um and then it takes a while to sort of get into the groove of work and then he needs to leave at four so if i were looking at it as a numbers game ted to me would all of a sudden be a liability in some respects
3: if well, I that, yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying, and that could be the case. However, most most of the people who have super jobs, they have a history, and they know that this is a blip, and it's you know it, they they won't always be getting in at noon and leaving at four. They will start having a balance. They'll get in at nine and leave at five, like everybody else. And occasionally, they'll stay late and do what they need to do because they're skilled.
0: And we hope uh-huh. employees, uh, you know, work for great companies where they have a great benefits package and, and really want them to heal and move on.
3: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They're valued as employees. So, Lynn, when you go about
2: doing an assessment, and this is, I think, where it, 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 could, it could get dicey because you see it in concurrent disorders a lot where an individual come in, you know, for their drinking problem or their drinking problem, and all of a sudden they realize, oh, my God, I have bipolar or I have this, you know, a, a form of dysphoria, really chronic depression, or whatever. And it's like, okay, so which one do we treat first? So, when you see mm-hmm. an individual, let's say and you're dealing with the, the individual for the substance abuse problem, and this must happen quite a bit, where the sexual abuse thing then comes up, like it's been repressed, and this thing comes up and rears its ugly head. So, how do you work through that? Like, especially if an individual will say, you know what, Lynn. I'll deal with the drinking, I'll deal with the drugging, I'll deal with my ma- anger management issue, whatever else issues I've got, but I just don't want to go dig down there. And it's, it's too painful. I pushed it down for a reason, and I don't want to relive it. Are you a type of therapist that says, you know what, we've got to get this out and clean it out?
3: Well, it's a, it's a really important question you're asking because, in, in fact, I worked 20 years in addictions, and the people who kept relapsing were the ones that had this underlying issue. They couldn't stay clean. They couldn't stay sober. So by the time they come to me, they've had attempts at trying to stay clean and sober, and I work with them. It's, it's almost like a braiding effect. We're working at the, same, oh, the whole issue. I don't say you have to become totally abstinent, but as they're working through their trauma issues, they drink less and less and less, and make a decision that they don't want they don't want to wake up like that anymore they don't want to lose that many days they you know they they almost always come to a place where they reduce their intake quite a bit on their own. Now I'll give them skills to do that to help them out with that obviously i've got you know I've worked in the field a long long time so you know, we'll talk about that. It'll be on the table. Like this is how you cope. This is one of your strategies. And do you still need to cope in that way? And maybe if you can't do it, you know, um, by reducing it, maybe you do have to look at abstinence. But it's a, it's a it's a it's a, it's part of it. And they no no one comes to see me and says. Um, I, I'll deal with the drinking, but I don't want to deal with the abuse. Obviously, I have a reputation, and they come to me because they want to deal with the abuse. So, you know, I don't get that problem. I, I, I'm kind of a specialist in the abuse area, so I don't run into that personally anymore.
0: So Does that makes sense. Oh, absolutely, yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you. Um, so you're, you're telling someone, okay, these, these behaviors are an offshoot of this underlying um, thing that happened to you. So we're working our way through that. And you're giving them coping strategies so they can avoid alcohol or drugs or sex or spending or whatever they're getting into. How do you or do you um, push them towards healthier things, whether it's healthier eating, um, healthier um, living in any capacity where they're just um, focused on the good things in life.
3: I, I, I'm taking exception to your word "push," and because these people have been, their choices have been taken from them. Right. And so I'm I'm only going to give them choices, and I'm going to encourage them to make some choices that they would prefer. And they would feel better about, I would never push uh, an abuse survivor into anything.
0: Yeah, that was a poor choice of words. I said sort direct, of <laughs> direct them to healthier things because sure. I would think I don't, I don't have any addiction issues. But if I did, I would think that, you know, if my usual routine is to go to the bar on a Friday night, but I'm sitting at home and it's 8 o'clock, I would get a little twitchy and I would be needing something <laughs> to do. So what, what are some of the things that you would tell them to do to replace those behaviors?
3: Well we develop strategies for sure. We we develop all kinds of strategies and some of them work and then we find out when they don't work why they didn't work. So someone may be um, really interested in um, running. Right. So they're a little twitchy so they'll they'll take out their old shoes and dust them off and say you know what maybe I'll go for a bit of a run. Or someone may find every Friday night when they came home at 5 o'clock, they're really craving a drink, because that's what they did every Friday night when they came home. Mm. So maybe stop uh, somewhere on the way home and um, pick up a movie. So delaying being home at that particular time. Mm. Just, just to get over the, that initial, oh, I'm home, it's 5 o'clock, I feel like a drink, because that's what I always did. So you know, maybe other strategies. Maybe doing something in different, so you're not home at five o'clock the first few Fridays. Right. Or maybe when you do come home, maybe you're you're mixing yourself a smoothie. You've got this keen recipe. You're already you're all excited about it because you just found out about it, and you know you're going to try that instead. So you know it depends on the person. The yeah. strategies are always unique and and individual.
2: Yeah, and I think that's that's the key in terms of. You know, putting some protocol and intervention in place. Um, We're talking with Lynn McDonnell, uh, who's a very wise person in the field of male survivors and sexual abuse, as well as abuse for um, all areas. And what's really uh, cool about Lynn is that in 2014, she received a commissioner's commendation for her role in educating police justice partners, community support, and child protection workers to enable them to address the unique and under-recognized needs of male victims. So, Lynn, you are putting on an exceptional conference, that which you put on each year, correct? Could you tell our listeners, uh, I know it's going to be later in the year, can you tell them a little bit about it, who's for, and who should come to it?
3: Oh, wonderful. Thanks for asking me about that. Well, it's um, it, it's for um, survivors of trauma. So on Thursday evening, there's a uh, an event called Dare to Dream, and it's an event where, where we'll talk about what survivors of trauma go through, and we'll have a panel of recovering survivors, and that's a Thursday evening event. It's free. And then on Friday, we have a whole list of really important speakers. I think you might have said, you might come and speak with us, and we'll talk about all kinds of abuse, uh, domestic abuse, and uh, it's for men, all kinds of abuse, and it's because it's a men's conference. So domestic abuse and tra- sexual abuse and, you know, uh, all, uh, different kinds of uh, trauma that men experience. And then and some women experience it, too, so there'll be a little bit about the trauma that women experience, but we're going to focus more on men this time. What well, we always do, and then on Saturday it's a, a day of recovery, and it's a unique and special day where we have um, we have up to 28 men who will go through a series of experiences and group therapy and um, learning processes, and that day is is unique and special because it's taken from what we call Malesurvivors.org, and it's like their there's a shorter version of a weekend of recovery so it's um it's really a valuable experience and men that go to it tell tell me that their lives have changed so it's um coming up october the 23rd in toronto um i'll I'll send information out it'll be on my website pretty soon and it'll be really neat last year it was really well attended and, and got such huge commendations it was
0: well received yeah so it would be a good uh, starting point for anyone considering you know whether to well they want to deal with with something that's happened in the past that's been traumatic and they want to move past it is there an expectation that they need to share their names or any personal details or can someone just come and be a bit of a fly on the wall and just soak up the experience so to speak
3: another good question Thursday night they can be a fly on the wall and we always have therapists there if they get triggered they can go talk to the therapist one-on-one when I've done these events almost people who come there and want to be a fly on the wall they can get triggered but there's a therapist there who will talk to them and and help help them get grounded and those kind of things Uh, Friday is uh, just uh, come and listen and ask questions if you want um, Saturday is a different day. It's, it's an intensive day and you're going to be involved. You're going to tell your story a little bit, not much. You're going to have your name, your first name, not your last name. You can be anonymous but you will, you will um, be a little bit more out there.
2: Hmm. Excellent, excellent. And it is, As I say folks, um, these conferences, especially for male survivors of sexual abuse and abuse in general, they're few and far between and this is an exceptional thing that Lynn and her associates are doing so Lynn we're out of time we have to let you go but before we let you oh. go can you please let our listeners know the best place that they can reach you out and learn more about you because you're an awesome person and a tremendous wealth of information
3: thank you very much well they could. it's really better to email me because um, sometimes I, I'm, on, I'm on the phone with somebody else. So you can really e- reach me easier if you email me at lm, for my name, Lynn McDonnell, Therapy at gmail.com.
2: And you do have a website, correct?
3: I do, www.lmtherapy.com.
2: Perfect. So, folks, definitely go check out the website. It's an awesome website and an excellent Um, resource if you know somebody that is being abused or you yourself have been abused you got to take the first steps and this is the best place to start thank you so much lynn for joining us
3: thank you for having me
0: stay tuned more matters of the mind right around the corner we just need to take a short break buying or selling a home condo or investment property may be one of the largest transactions you'll ever make it's important to gather as much information as you can and preferably from experienced successful professionals when it comes time to make your move call the mulholland ross real estate team with keller williams real estate service at 416-230-8500 or visit www.realestatetoronto.com whether you're making your first move or selling your much-loved family home the mulholland ross team offers a 26 years of real estate sales and service across the gta listen every sunday at 4 p.m here on radio that doesn't suck to hear the team share advice and information that will assist you with your personal wealth through real estate questions or topics you'd like to see covered email info at realestatetoronto.com or call the mulholland ross team at 416-230-8500
2: welcome to my new book niagara's most haunted legends and myths which is not just a book about ghosts and haunted places rather about history in the niagara region This book explores and uncovers parts of the Niagara region which are considered some of the richest in North American history and the most haunted. As a matter of fact, one of the bloodiest battles in North American history, the War of 1812 between the British and the Americans was fought here. And this year, the bicentennial year anniversary of the War of 1812 is covered in this book. This book explores most of the haunted places, legends that have existed from the 1800s right now to 2012. Each chapter covers a different type of landmark, which not only educates readers on historical significances, but also entertains with anecdotal ghost stories and paranormal investigations. Join me in this book as we visit beds and breakfasts, ships and boats, trains, tunnels, museums, mansions, highways, forks, cemeteries, waterfalls, and many more, and see if the Niagara the region is really haunted. Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths is now available at Indigo Chapters and online on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and visit our website, www.Niagara'sMostHaunted.com. Be afraid. Be very afraid.
0: Welcome back to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Heard worldwide on Listen Up Talk Radio at talk-radio.ca.
2: We to matters of the mind where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week and folks uh, as we said you had a lot of questions coming my way in regards to you guys gonna do any more shows or talk about abuse and that's what our issue is today talking about abuse and we've been talking abuse not only you know abuse towards kids but abuse towards everybody and anything and as i've always said and i've always preached say no to abuse, all abuse is wrong and all bullying is wrong so if you see it in your community folks, you see it in your house, you see it in your school or at the workplace, don't tolerate it, stand up and be a difference maker. And now joining us is Dr. Alice Forrester, it's a real privilege to have her on, she is the executive director of Clifford W. Beer's Child Guidance Clinic in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, it's the director she's director of the oldest outpatient clinic in Connecticut which is really really cool and hopefully um, Alice you're having good weather there because we're supposed to have a potential ice storm we're all fingers crossed that we're not gonna have it today
1: oh that's good we've had our crazy weather here in New Haven I looked out this morning and hoping that the water on the ground was not ice but uh, It's been uh, 55 a couple of days and now it's about 25, so it's a crazy weather.
2: (laughs) So I guess, tell us a little bit about the the, the clinic that you um, are the executive director at. What, you know, you you do a lot of stuff in addressing traumatic stress, specializing in both, you know, I'm gonna guess family and child traumatic awareness and stress, correct?
1: Right, absolutely. So uh, as you mentioned, we're pretty old. We just are celebrating our 102nd year uh, in existence, and uh, we're named after our founder, Clifford Beers, which I don't know if uh, any of your listeners know his history, but he uh, was a psychiatric patient at the turn of the century and uh, was hospitalized for suicidality and major depression, but uh, then was actually put into an insane asylum. And, uh, at the turn of the century, and when he was there, he realized that the treatment was just terrible and, you know, that they were just locking folks away with mental health issues and that there should be a study of mental health and people should understand it like they understand physical health. And after he was released, after a couple of years, he wrote a book called The Mind That Found Itself. And in the book, he called for sort of a National Institute of Mental Health, and uh, he got the attention of quite a few People and they started the Connecticut Mental Hygiene Society, which then now is the Mental Health America, uh, which is the largest consumer-driven mental health uh, group in the in the world, actually, because it's gone quite international. And they were behind every mental health law in the states, um, you know, really uh, since since they started. So. Our founder, uh, he helped found and, and sort of started this whole mental health movement uh, in our country and in, in, the, in the world, and he came back after about 15 years of doing that and had to, he, was st- he remained ill his whole life with depression, and he started our clinic as a sort of way to kind of keep quiet, a little quieter uh, locally in New Haven. And so we've always been uh, looking at how do we provide a space in the community for children, families, adults who are suffering with mental health issues? How do we support them and, you know, help them sort of integrate into society and, um, you know, thrive? And so for the last 102 years we've been doing that, and, uh, you know, now we're specializing in children and family, but families. And when you specialize in children and families, it's not – you, you just run into trauma and abuse, unfortunately, all the time. Uh, so we've had to specialize in it because that's really what we're seeing as presenting problems in our families.
0: It's amazing that someone who suffered so greatly with um, his challenges, he was able to inspire and, and bring great change to an area that sorely needed it.
1: Absolutely. And, he you know, he was... Uh, his illness actually helped a little bit because probably he would have been diagnosed with uh, bipolar so he had these grand moves, mood swings and when he was in um, more of the upper ends he felt uh, invincible and he would be able to reach out he reached out actually to William James and when James was dying uh, in up in Boston and convinced James to write the preface for his book so, um, you know, in a lot of ways, he was able to manage his illness and still really make uh, an incredible uh, success. He had a very big vision, and, you know, I think 102 years later, he could probably say, you know, if he was, if he was still around, he'd probably maybe feel good that that's the contribution he was able to make.
2: And, and for those listeners that don't know who William James is, he actually was an exceptional uh, very well-known American philosopher and psychologist who is very very famous book, The Variety of Religious Experience. If you've never read it, it's definitely good. I know if you're a psych undergrad or graduate, <laughs> that was that was staple for your research. So let me ask you this, else we were talking about this um, this morning with our previous guest because we're up here in Canada, eh? um, as everybody likes to laugh.
3: Yeah.
2: Hey. Uh, so, how prevalent is male sexual abuse when it's perpetrated against the male in the United States. Um, is there still a stigma to it for males coming out and saying, hey, I'm, I've i got this happening to me and this is a terrible thing. Is it taken seriously um, or is there just still a stigma and is there readily help available for them? Oh,
1: that's a really good question. Um well, of course, you know, uh, the statistics that we quote often um, and always are one out of four girls and one out of five boys. So, um, And we are pretty clear that those numbers are un- underrepresenting um the uh, sexual abuse in our country. So, you know, we're really looking at 25% of our kids experience some form of uh, sexual perpetration. Boys and girls, and uh, the stigma of that, of course, is uh, you know remains uh, very, uh, very prevalent. And in particular for boys, um, because you know they they um, you know have some of them. Some of the kids really struggle with you know is it really uh, abuse or or you know not really understanding what's happening to them. But I think that uh, in general. You know, our, our, I did my dissertation on girls, uh, girls talking about their sexual abuse process, you know, their disclosure process.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I loved the intro of what you said, you know, around bullying and, you know, you have to step up and, and stop abuse if you see it. And when I talked to the girls about their experiences of telling, you know, they said to me that from the very first moment of perpetration, you know, when the perpetrator touched them or or uh, hurt them, they were thinking who they could tell and who they couldn't tell. Huh. And they were they were debating in their head, or they had these this thought process of who would believe them and what the impact of their telling would have on others. So they were negotiating within you know within their own mind around the process and the risk, you know, sort of doing a risk assessment in their head of who they would tell. And, um, you know, a lot of them would say, you know, I know if I told my neighbor's family would be, you know, fall apart, or if I told my mom would lose her house because, you know, this guy was our source of income. So they were really, you know... It, it it was shocking to me how much negotiation they had and often their predictions or intuition were correct because once they did tell you know a lot of these more devastating things happen so in a lot of ways it, it, the thing i found was that kids were less worried about the stigma and more worried around the impact it would have on others if they told so um you know, if you can imagine a young man being abused, let's say, by a leader, a sports coach or a priest or something, you know, you can imagine him really, you know, weighing the odds of who would believe him um, or what the disclosure might tell. So, I don't know. I, I think that we have to really think about our kids in a, in, in a way that they're struggling with the what the impact would be if they told.
0: It's funny when I hear you talk about it, it's almost like you said negotiation, but for me, I'm almost hearing a self-protection mechanism kick in, um, both for themselves and for the abuser.
1: Or the abuser's uh, family. I One one little girl told me it was a, a neighbor's, uh, the, the father in the household of a neighbor, you know, very big family neighbors. And she was like, if I told, he would, you know, the kids would be af- impacted. And so... There was a, 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 an underlying um, eroticism that I was um, picking up on. You know, I, I I hesitate to call it that, but, you know, a, a certain amount of compassion that the kids were having for others uh, by not disclosing.
0: I've noticed I'm looking at your website, and you offer a lot of programs that deal with interventions, and I'm um, I, I have some familiarity with some agencies up here that 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 provide similar services and it is critical to get kids while they're young to start the healing process so that they don't live with it for you know 20s of years and many many years and suffer the the job loss and the shiftlessness as they're moving around and they're they're so restless they can't put it behind them and move on with their lives and and I want could you talk for a minute about some of the services where you sort of jump in and, and get someone healing right away?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, we have a beautiful program down here called Child First, which is uh, across the state. We happen to be one of the sites that it's being run, and um, it's an interesting program because it's working with parents who have experienced abuse and neglect, right? Mm. And uh, their infant is uh, from zero to five. The kids are. So what we're doing there is. We're trying to work on um, the generate the, the parent generation to work on their trauma, and for them to be able to uh, be able to attach and connect with their children, and not um, you know be sort of filled up or disturbed by their own past traumas. And um, we see that as a really uh, I- innovative and hopeful future. Right? Because we have lots of generation our, you know, last couple generations of folks, a lot of them never received any help for their, um, their, um, their abuse or trauma. It was really only in the '80s we started to, late, mid-'80s, really let women testify in their own rape cases. you know, they didn't need a witness. So it's really we're just in the infancy of this work and, and the healing. So that early childhood interventions work really beautifully. There's a great uh, intervention called S- Circle of Security, which is working with parents on uh, wa- work, uh, understanding their little kids' behavior and their cycle of wanting to be very close, and then kind of exploring the world, and really uh, teaching parents on how to parent. So that, I think, is a very important thing. The, the um, other thing that we're, we do is we have this program at the uh, center it, the multi, um the Child Advocacy Center here, uh, which we are one of the uh, founding members of. and when a child discloses, we have therapists who live in who work in the center, and they work briefly with the family, we call it a bridging work to actually help them understand the impact on their own lives and how to work with their child who has disclosed sexual abuse or, um, you know, physical abuse, and how to, um, you know, sort of seek services, and, you know, many of the families just need that little bit of the intervention, and they can kind of then move forward. They've gotten a little introduction to what some mental health interventions would be, and they know that if they need them in the future, what to look for, Um, and we're finding that as an excellent way, bridging way, if you will, into uh, the world of mental health because a lot of times, you know, once a kid discloses about sexual abuse, a lot of families, they've never had to deal with this. They don't, you know, they they have never maybe utilized mental health services themselves so that they're they're really like, what do I do?
2: Hmm. So, Alice, with younger kids, how young is... I guess what is the limit that you work with in terms of dealing with kids that are facing sexual abuse, Um, and have you ever used play therapy with them?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, My background, my secret background is is I have a drama therapy background. (laughs) Oh, the the secret. (laughs) I I then went and got my PhD in clinical psychology. So yes, we do. Um, We're we're actually trained in an evidence based practice that I'm sure a lot of folks up there. Uh, Note two is called Trauma-Focused Cognitive Behavioral Therapy and it's called for short TFCBT and it's a uh, one of the leading evidence-based practices that utilizes play art uh, music drama for the child and working with them to actually um, learn about what trauma does you know and what it does to the body um, educate them uh, teaching them relaxation techniques all the while working up towards being able to have the kid disclose their trauma narrative, which we which is really basically what happened to them. And um, then we're working side by side with the parent and teaching them some of the same skills and then all the ultimate goal is to bring the parent and the child together in the same room where the child can actually tell their story. And we've worked with the parent, coached them on how they should react you know, um, and, you know, how they, how they handle the story so that the child, believe, you know, has a way of telling the parent um, the exact details. And we find that significantly helpful for our kids and our parents. Um, we, we work with kids as young as we can work three, four, and five. Um, we, as I said, the Child First program, we're working from birth. Uh, you know, in that early ages, but that work is really, the younger kid work is really focused on the parent-child uh, relationship, so you really want to think about including the parent as, as also part of the, um, the healing and, and, and receiving services. Uh, when the child, you know, five, six, seven, eight, you know, we're um, the, the largest number of kids, we see a couple thousand kids a year. The average age is around eight when they start to really exhibit um, problems, where which would bring them to a mental health facility. Frankly, often they're not coming because of the abuse; they're coming because of their problem behavior.
0: Yeah, we've been talking about that the whole day. Where you know it manifests itself in various ways, depending on the age of the child or the adult. If it has been you know undiagnosed or untreated, you know you get into all sorts of addiction issues for sure.
1: Right. I'm sure you, did you um, look at the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experience study? No. Oh, you definitely should do a show on that. It's a, a, a amazing study done in Kaiser Permanente and the CDC in California. Uh, Vincent Folletti and Robert Anda, ANDA, were the authors of that study, and it really showed a direct correlation between the number of adversities a person has experienced with almost every health and mental health problem you can imagine. So it's a phenomenal study that um, has really changed our view of what health and wellness look like.
0: So um, I'm looking at your website again. There's a wonderful contact us page. There's a what we do our impact. Um, Do you have a catchment area for service treatment or do you are you open to anywhere in New Haven?
1: Uh, We serve the greater New Haven region so it's about 18 towns. Um, We also were asked by the state uh, government to be the recovery response for the Newtown uh, shooting in the Sandy Hook School. So uh, that's not in our catchment, but we do work in Sandy Hook. Uh, We're in the school, um, the new Sandy Hook School, and then we'll be moving into the new building that they're building next year. And... um, we also have another program for military families that reaches the whole state. So we'll see families from all over Connecticut. Connecticut's not a very big state, unlike Canada. You
0: have regions. have And the, um, the uh, military treatment program is, is a wonderful initiative. I know we have some PTSD problems up here with our military coming back as well, and uh, it's, uh, it's an area that needs to be addressed, and I'm glad you're helping with it. So the website is cliffordbeers.org. Yes, it is. Okay, great. And Dr. Alice Forrester was our guest today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. More matters of the mind right around the corner. Please stay tuned.
2: of the mind or everything on your mind matters to us each and every week so folks that is basically a wrap for today and if you could take anything from our show just one thing to take forward with you is always remember all abuse is abuse and say no to it and definitely be a difference maker and if you're suffering from any sort of victimization traumatization whether it be currently or happened many many years ago and it's affecting your life it is leading you to consume alcohol out of control, taking drugs, engaging in unsavory or even illicit behaviors that can get you in trouble with the law, it's probably a good bet for you to speak to somebody, a professional, and there are great helplines available online. Um, and you can also find information through your own doctor, probably your physician, and possibly go to an AA meeting, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. That might be your first step.
0: Yeah, and if it's an urgent situation there's always 911 anywhere you go thank you for listening to Matters of the Mind you can find us online at talkbashradio.ca you can find Dr. Sacco online on Facebook and of course at petersacco.com We'll talk to you again real soon. You've been listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco. Get in touch with him on his website, petersacco.com or find his contact page on listenup at talk-radio.ca Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash listenuptalkradio on Twitter at listenuptalk. Thanks for listening and sharing our posts. We'll catch you next week.